Good afternoon. I'd like to start this afternoon with a poem, a short poem. For those of you who have been to my Dharma talks or happy hour, you'll know that there's this particular poet. I just appreciate her words so much. This poet is Rosemary Traumer. That doesn't matter so much. I just want to honor and respect her. You guys don't need to remember this, but uh, just bringing her name into the room. And the poem goes like this. When the boy is sneering, or the glass is breaking, or the woman is weeping, or the streets are crowded with anger and rage, it's hard to believe a small joy has any real value. Hard to believe a single red Gerber daisy or a cup of grapefruit-scented tea might have any relevance, could bear any weight on the scale that measures what it is to be alive. But Last night, while I was steeping in worry, aching with injustice, my daughter created a stage between the threadbare couches and hummed herself a soundtrack as she leapt and spun and shuffled and flapped and, oh, how her brief flare of joy changed the flavor of the night. An improbable balance. The way even the smallest amount of sugar transforms the bitter sauce. The way just one note resolves a minor chord. The way the barest hint of rain makes the whole desert erupt into bloom. An improbable balance, the way even the smallest amount of sugar transforms the bitter sauce. The way just one note resolves a minor chord. The way the barest hint of rain makes the whole desert erupt into bloom. An improbable balance. This is what Nikki and I are pointing to. This power, this transformative power, doesn't have to be a giant shift. It doesn't have to be a giant change. It doesn't have to be a giant event. In fact, it can be quite subtle. It can be quite minor. And the Buddha pointed to this also. 
Recently I've been, I had some shin splints. It's like this old recurring injury that flares up on occasion. It gets really difficult to walk for any distance or stand for very long, and it can be quite uncomfortable. Those of you who've had shin splints know. But then the shin splints resolved, and I didn't notice. I just started to walk a little bit more and stand a little bit longer. Like, of course, that's just what I do. But then when I remembered, oh yeah, I used to have just shin splints. And this ordinary thing of just walking this ordinary distance used to be uncomfortable. But now it isn't. And there was this little uplift in the heart. Oh yeah, now it's now it's okay. So often we miss these small little uplifts that arise with the absence of something. It's much more difficult to notice absences. And the Buddha pointed to this in a number of different stories. And these stories are very brief and they're a little bit exaggerated to really drive home the point. So at first we might want to be dismissive, like, okay, those are just these exaggerated stories. What do they have to do with me, with my practice, with what's happening? But the exaggeration is just a way to make a point. Can we feel into what's being pointed to, what the Buddha, the direction he was pointing, without getting tied up in exactly the specifics? So related to maybe Diana and her shin splints, here's a quote from the suttas. Suppose a person were sick, suffering, and gravely ill. Shin splints are not gravely ill, right? But these are all exaggerations. But for some of us, they're not exaggerations. I do want to honor and respect that. And I'll talk about this, how there's like such a range. But I want us to tune into like the the direction that the Buddha is pointing us toward. Suppose a person were sick, suffering, and gravely ill. They'd lose their appetite and get physically weak. This time in ancient India, right, the medicine was really limited. So they didn't have thermometers, right, of course, for temperature, all these things. But one's appetite was really a focus as how well you were doing. They'd lose their appetite and get physically weak, but... After some time, they'd recover from that illness and regain their appetite and their strength. Thinking about this, they'd be filled with gladness and happiness, delight. Suppose a person who has gotten into debt and 
were to apply themselves to work and their efforts proved successful, they would pay off the original loan and be able to support their family. Thinking about this, they would be filled with gladness and happiness. Suppose a person were imprisoned in a jail, but after some time they were released from jail, safe and sound with no loss of wealth. Thinking about this, they'd be filled with gladness and happiness. Suppose a person were traveling along a desert road and after some time they crossed over the desert, made it to the safe and sound with no loss of wealth. We can think of wealth in these these, uh, language here as anything that's valuable. And I get the impression that Bandits were something that were kind of common. I don't know if common is the right word, but certainly there's enough stories that have bandits. So the absence of bandits. After crossing over desert, safe and sound with no loss of wealth, thinking about this, they'd be filled with gladness and happiness. So this recognition that the absence of some difficulties brings some delight. Maybe it's really small. But maybe that's okay. It's so easy to overlook and dismiss these types of uplift, gladness. And so tonight I'd like to talk a little bit about this relationship between difficulties and happiness. Not only about the ending of difficulties, because I'm starting where it's obvious, the most obvious. We don't need the Buddha to tell us that there's gladness and happiness after that getting out of jail or getting out of debt. But maybe we do need him to, I don't know, but I'll just say for me, it was helpful to be reminded, oh yeah, to notice. Sometimes we're so preoccupied with what the difficulties are, forgetting that other difficulties have gone away. And again, I'm not saying that difficulties don't exist, and I'm not saying that everything is perfect. I just want us to have some additional opportunities to notice when things are okay. Or there's some delight, or gladness, or happiness. Some of you might have noticed or these little stories, these um, similes. If you're familiar with the suttas, you might have heard them before. If not, that's perfectly fine. But the Buddha uses these stories to point to something that happens in meditation practice. Happens to everybody. 
there are no exceptions except maybe Buddhas. I'm not even sure about that, but something that happens to every single person who tried to meditate. It happens, something that happens for all of us, whether we're trying to learn how to crochet, change the oil on the car, grow some house plants. Things that, these difficulties that get in the way. Whether we're on the cushion or off the cushion. And what are these things that get in the way? We have a term that we often use. Veilings, coverings, things that we can't see on the other side of, that are covering over something that could be valuable, useful for us. We also call them hindrances, things that are getting in the way. And all these hindrances have this quality of restriction or binding or tightening or uncomfortableness or being stuck. Or maybe the sense of spinning our wheels. And that absence of these hindrances all have the quality of delight, maybe some peace, openness, spaciousness, freedom, gladness. Some of you will know this list of hindrances. For those of you who don't, are you surprised that the Buddha has a list? (laughs) One is sensual desire, this chasing after pleasant experiences, the hedonic treadmill that all of us have spent time on, of course we have. And chances are you would not come to a silent seven-day meditation retreat where you have to wear masks for a number of days if you still thought that just more and more and more pleasure was the secret to happiness. This recognition that that just this leaning forward, running after the next pleasant experience, whether it's food or music or surfing the internet, watching cat videos, which I love cat videos, don't get me wrong, but they're not sources of lasting happiness. And Nikki and I want to point towards what can be sources of lasting happiness. And some of this pleasant experiences can be a support for that. But there's also this recognition that it's not lasting. So sensual desire as a hindrance is just thinking that it is going to be lasting. Okay, as soon as I get this new car, this new meditation shawl, better zafu, you know, whatever it might be. This aversion is the opposite. 
other side of the same coin of, you know, get this away from me. Everything will be fine as long as this ends, goes away, stops. That's the second of the hindrance. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. Third one is less about leaning forward or um, leaning away, and it's more about just this shutting down, this collapsing of our energy that can happen that's not related to physical tiredness. No amount of sleep can fix it, but instead there's just this It's just too much. And this kind of like collapsing or heaviness that can happen, or if it's not a collapsing or heaviness, there can be a sense of meditation where we find this cottony, foggy, cushy kind of place that initially feels like, oh, okay, finally a little bit of it feels cushiony. For me, it's very much like a sense of cotton or cloud. A little, not quite connected to what's happening. But for any of you who have found yourself in this space, you'll notice that the energy drains right out of it and it can't quite go forward. Sometimes we call this sinking mind, where there's this, haven't, well, there isn't a brightness. There isn't this being with our experience instead, we've kind of just hanging out in this fluffy place, which has a quality of pleasantness for a little bit, but as the energy drains out, it starts to feel swampy. That's the third hindrance. Again, all meditators have this. The fourth it's the opposite. If that ring, if that bell doesn't ring in the next few minutes, I'm going to jump up out of here screaming. That kind of like restlessness, like, oh my goodness. This can be like energy that uh, has a buzzy quality or ping pong balls that are bouncing around or this sense of fidgety, Restlessness. And then the fifth one is doubt. We use this word doubt, but I'm not sure that's the best word, but it has this sense of vacillation, hesitation. Should I do this practice? Well, maybe I should do this other practice because that helped me that one time when I was on that retreat or I had that one guided meditation in which it was really great and helpful, so maybe I should do that. But wait, they keep on talking about this mindfulness thing, so maybe I should do that. But actually, my knees bother me, so I'm going to be mindful of this. No, actually, maybe I should do loving kindness. You get this feeling, right? We were just quite can't settle because we haven't quite figured out the perfect practice. We haven't heard the perfect teacher yet. The hindrances, they all have this quality of restriction or binding or uncomfortableness or being stuck. 
And then the ending of them have this feeling of release or freedom, peace, happiness, delight. Maybe I want to say it's a trap if we think that there's only delight and happiness when these hindrances go away. It's there. I'm pointing to it. The Buddha is pointing to it. But it can be a trap if we think that that's the only place it is. If we have to wait until all the conditions get perfect, until this mind starts behaving itself, until this body starts behaving like we would like it to. I suspect that many of you have noticed that this is a trap, (laughs) thinking that well-being is only going to happen when these other things, when when the hindrances have gone away and, and instead we're feeling good. So... So much about practice is shifting our relationship to the experience. This is the way forward. We can't make the knee stop being uncomfortable at that moment. We can't stop the mind. If it's really busy, we can't just will it to settle down. We've all been trying but we can shift our relationship to that experience. We can stop secretly demanding that it be different. We can stop blaming ourselves. We can stop blaming others. This is where the happiness is. This is the where the well-being and the joy is. Maybe I'll say that part of this shift in our relationship to the hindrances, this is such a fantastic place to practice. And in fact, we might even say this is practice. Because if we want to be more mindful, if we want the mind and the heart to be settled, then by definition, we're working with non-mindfulness. We're working with non-settledness. If you were already mindful, you wouldn't need to be practicing mindfulness necessarily. So this is an integral part of practice. It's not like something that you wish could go away and then practice would be fine. This is the practice. This shift in relationship to the difficulties Because if you didn't have any difficulties, again, you wouldn't be here. You would be out there doing whatever people that don't have difficulties do. I don't know what it is, but they would be doing that. 
So this is such a great opportunity actually to practice here because it's not just in meditation these things show up, difficulties. They show up in our life. It's just on the cushion they just become abundantly clear. In our life we get to distract ourselves or maybe not notice them and for so many reasons why. But just imagine how a life would unfold if, for example, having some aversion to difficulties, habitually, it's a pattern, it's a habit, it's the usual way of working with it. And so this not being able to quite be with difficulties, but instead having aversion, a life unfolds one particular way if we always have to turn away or have to blame or get filled with anger or something. But a life unfolds differently if we don't have to turn away from the difficulties or as many of the difficulties. Then we could stay present with somebody that we love and care about receives a difficult diagnosis. We can not shut down or retaliate uh, if a coworker does something that seems really awful towards us. We can be with the fact that these bodies age. They get sick. There is discomfort and illness. And I would like to go so far as to say, if you do nothing else but work with difficulties on this retreat, that might be one of the most transformative things you could do. If you find yourself working with difficulty after difficulty, it is not pleasant. It is not fun, it's not easy, it's not necessarily pretty. But this is how we transform our life. And this is practice. So much of this is practice. So in all these stories that I just was saying that the person gets out of jail... And then when they notice they got out of jail, they have this gladness and happiness. Yesterday, Nikki was talking about the gladness pentan. Gladness, joy, tranquility, happiness, concentration. As Nikki said, there's different ways we can translate that. The Pali is the same. The Buddha in these stories goes on to say that gladness leads to joy, tranquility, happiness, concentration, knowledge and vision, and a few other steps into liberation. Straight from working with the hindrances towards awakening. And the way that I like to think about this gladness pentad is it's a cascade. 
And even in the suttas, it talks about it being a cascade, how it just, the next step naturally arises. We don't have to make it happen. It's a cascade, but the way in my mind that I think about it, and some of you might have heard me use this, is that it's like a children's slide, or not a children's slide, any slide. You have to walk up the ladder. It takes effort. And then, you go down the slide. And chances are you've noticed this somewhat already in practice. There's a certain amount of effort to show up here to the meditation hall, to show up to be with the breath again and again and again, to be with the difficulty, whatever's happening. But this is part of what it is to get up to the step. Anapanasati, for those of you who know this, this practice of mindfulness of breathing leads naturally to joy. We don't have to make it happen. So an encouragement to like trust this practice, it seems like surely just being with my breath can't be sufficient. But there's a way in which just returning again and again and again, we start to notice, oh yeah, this is getting in the way of my returning. There's this difficulty here. So there can be a way to work with that difficulty. Part of the way is to not give it lots of energy and attention and just come back to the breath. But sometimes we can't even be with the breath because the difficulty is that predominant or is calling our name very loudly. So I'll talk a little bit about how to work with difficulty, some specific tangible things we can do. But before I do, I want to highlight something that's, I think, important. I know for me it was important. The Buddha's pointing out that on the other side of difficulties is gladness and happiness. And as I said, we don't need a Buddha to know this. We know that on the, when there's a, something difficult has gone away, there's more delight. But I really want to highlight this relationship goes both ways. Ending of difficulty, more happiness. More happiness, more endings of difficulty. That might be obvious too, but I want to highlight that because this goes both ways, this relationship, any moment of delight or happiness is like this improbable balance. In the poem, it's like this sugar that turns a bitter sauce. So we work with where we are. If we're in the middle of difficulties, this helps us to find some more ease. If we are experiencing ease, this helps us to work with even more difficulties, helps us to increase our capacity to be with difficulties. It goes both directions. And we know this, we all have this experience. But I just want to highlight this. This is part of why happiness is part of the path of practice. 
because the goal is peace and freedom and ease. And so happiness helps with less difficulties. Happiness helps with more peace, freedom, and ease. Awakening, liberation, whatever words you want to use. So how can we work with difficulties? Just in case you have any... (laughs) it's helpful to just recognize yep, this is restlessness this is aversion this is torpor just this fogginess or heaviness or this is desire I can't stop thinking about as soon as I get out of here I'm going to buy this I'm going to eat that I'm going to whatever it might be so just to recognize Sometimes be able to say that can be just enormous benefit. And there might even be a little blip of delight, like, oh, I got this. In the same way, maybe, like the crossword puzzle, oh yeah, for a cross is restlessness. (laughs) Second is, Is there a way that we can allow it to be there? It is there. It's already there. So can we align with reality? And just, yeah, it's here, and allow it to be there instead of trying to shove it away, instead of pretending it's not there. I think many of us have this experience that like just being mindful of something, which means that we're kind of like allowing it to be there, this also can be a little blip of delight. Like, oh yeah, just bringing our attention to it, bringing our awareness to it. There's no need to make a story about it. It doesn't mean anything about us as meditators. Every meditator has this experience. We might have our favorite ones, like we or we differ in which of these we tend to maybe experience more often, but all of us experience all of these. So recognize what's happening, allow it to be there. I'll say more about this relationship to the experience. in a moment. But can we shift our relationship to be one of allowing? Chances are we were trying to like ignore or turn away from or I don't know. There's so many things that we do, right? Not to be with difficulties. And then is there a way that we can interrupt the momentum of this difficulty Sometimes just recognizing it will interrupt the momentum. Sometimes just allowing it will interrupt it. But if there is still this momentum, can we interrupt it? And a really good way to do this 
is to feel that experience in the body. I have this aversion to this uncomfortable sensation in my knees, and this aversion feels like this tightness in my throat, maybe because I want to tightness in the throat, and I'm noticing that I have tension in my hands. For me also, I notice sometimes like my shoulders go forward a little bit, like there's a little bit of getting tight. First, I will often notice it in my hands. This interrupts the momentum because often the hindrances are being fueled by story-making in the minds, like, if this doesn't end, maybe I'm damaging my knee, or maybe my knee is hurting because that thing happened when I was eight, and if my brother hadn't have pushed me off my bicycle, I wouldn't have this this time. And remember that bike? That was so great. I wonder what happened to it. Do they make bikes like that anymore? Right, we off can go here, but sometimes the the hindrance is just this, oh, this pain, if it doesn't stop, I'm not going to be able to walk. And to be sure, I am not saying that we have to disregard pain. Each of you are caretakers and responsible for your well-being, and you know for yourself, for your body and health, what's wise and what isn't. Each of you have this awareness. Or if you don't, I'll say, here's, here's a quick and dirty uh, way to work with it. If there's some real discomfort in the body, when you get up from the sit and it goes away after a certain amount of time, certain amount of time, 10 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, then you're doing okay. But If you get up and your body still hurts, then don't continue to sit in that way. We're not about harming ourselves here. So interrupt the momentum, because chances are the momentum's in the mind. And we can interrupt the momentum by bringing to the bodily experience. And the bodily experience will have words like Stabbing, tightness, throbbing, constriction. I, I don't know what it would be, but notice that these are like feelings, these are sensations. So you get to discover for yourself what those words are. Maybe there's like a falling forward a little bit or, you know, something like that. Recognize, allow, feel in the body. Is there also a way in which we, if the, if this difficulty is persistent, we might like investigate? Maybe understanding it might be the most powerful. So another way we might interrupt the momentum is to be curious about it. Oh. This is restlessness. Last time I was feeling it mostly in my legs because I wanted to get up and run out of here. 
But right now, it feels like just buzziness. So just bringing some curiosity to how it feels. What is this experience? How is it in the mind? How is it in the body? And of course, you'll recognize this investigation, this curiosity is just bringing us back to the experience otherwise known as mindfulness. This is the practice. This is how we turn like these uh, seem like obstacles to the path. But there's so, there can be some curiosity about what the experience is, but if we find that these are persistent, not only in meditation or maybe in our life, can just drop in a gentle inquiry. And what I mean by this is we just drop in a question not with the intention to find the answer. The intention is to have some curiosity and to open to uh, to open to an answer. Not I gotta find this answer but Huh, I wonder what this is. And here's a question to drop in. Again, the emphasis on you don't have to find the answer. The answer might bubble up. These are the types of answers that are, we just make space for them. We don't go chase them or dig them up. We just allow them to bubble up. So a question could be, is there an underlying belief underneath this. Something like, I'm never going to be able to do this. Everybody else seems to be one step away from complete freedom, but here I am. Everything, or a thought like, uh, I'm failing. I don't know why, for me, this was, this is kind of a life thing. Like, I'm failing, therefore I need to go do this and do this and do this and do this and do this, and, right? And it just shows up that at any time a difficulty arises, we have this underlying belief. But you all will have your own. Maybe it's not even clear to you, but just that asking the question creates the opportunity in which there might be some new understanding, but it's also a shift in the relationship. We're no longer being pushed around by it. Instead, we're like, oh, let's look here with a openness, a spaciousness. That's practice. Recognize, allow, feel in the body or and bring some curiosity. That might be part of feeling in the body. R-A-F-T. I'll say is a T at the end of this. I'll say T as developed by 
Gail Fronstall and Tanya Weiser. T is for trust. Is there a way that we can trust the practice? Is there the way that we can trust ourselves? Is there a way that we can trust that things change? Trust whatever feels like you can trust. This is different than, I have to fix this now, dang it. Like trust is like this movement, this openness. And chances are, you have had this experience where having some mindfulness of something made it a little more tolerable and maybe you watched it shift and change. So is there a way that you can trust? Trust in the Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. You get to choose what feels like you want to trust in. But open to the idea that you don't have to figure it all out right now. You don't have to make it perfect right now. Because often if we get into the sense of like, I have to fix it, that gets us into this tightness and can perpetuate the difficulty. I think all of us know, right, that this acquiring or grabbing on or holding on for dear life isn't the way to more ease and freedom. But there's so many different ways in which this clinging and grabbing or grasping as tight as we can. It shows up in so many different ways. It's astounding. And as the mind and the body settle, we start to see, oh yeah, here's more subtle freedom and more subtle holding. A little bit more uh, subtle sitting. More subtle freedom and more subtle holding. This is partly why we go on retreat. It's because there's more settling that's possible when you don't have your in your daily life and your usual responsibilities. Recognize, allow, feel in the body. I'm going to slip in there some investigation and tea for trust. Raff it, or just raft or. whatever feels available. And then I, I want to just spend a little bit, we have these hindrances, I'm just going to talk a little bit in particular about aversion. There's a huge spectrum of aversion, boiling rage on one end, There's this sense of, I can't believe they did that. Don't they know who I am? Or, good thing that person wasn't here. I, you know, whatever, whatever, right? And you're allowed to have those feelings and experiences here. We're not acting on them. We're not speaking to each other, so we're not speaking to anybody except if we need to in our jobs. So you're allowed to have those experiences here. But there's also some really subtle aversion, and I'll talk a little bit about that too. But 
just this recognition, aversion, it's probably like a constellation of emotions. It's probably a mixture of hurt or frustration or embarrassment or shame or all these types of things rolled in together. It's often associated with a lot of thoughts and ideas. It's not unusual in retreat. We have aversion to other people. There's that person that does that thing that drives us crazy. I'll just remind us the truth is that we know very little about each other. Especially with our masks. Chances are you have a whole story about this person (laughs) that turns out to be not true. Just like they have a story about you (laughs) that isn't true. So just a reminder that We are quick to jump to conclusions, and we don't need to. So one of the more subtle ways in which aversion shows up is this inner critic. This way in which it's kind of like this this voice, this uh, inner voice that's putting us down or belittling us or making us feel inadequate or this voice of negativity that unfortunately is so common these days. Not everybody has it. And not necessarily we have it all the time. Or maybe we do have it all the time. That also is arranged. But there's this harshness. And when this inner critic is up and running, there's this feeling of inadequacy, this feeling of Whatever I'm doing, it's not enough. It's insufficient. So much unhappiness caught up in this. So with the inner critic, it's not uncommon for there to be this unspoken question of, am I doing it right? I must not be doing it right. And so I would just like to suggest another question instead of, am I doing it right? Which implies a sense of, you know, I'm doing it wrong, is implicit in that. Can we have a different type of question that's, how am I? Tuning into that experience when there's an inner critic. Or another question is, what would be helpful now? So both of these questions, how am I, what would be helpful, they have a flavor of care. They have a flavor of wanting to know paying attention. So if you find yourself, the inner critic, really loud and persuasive and authoritative, it's not true, by the way, all these things the inner critic says. I know it sounds like it is, but it's not true. But can we just say, what would be helpful right now? 
helpful, not in terms of we have to chase the next pleasure. It might be something, some soothing or some self-care might be appropriate. Or it might be what would be helpful right now. Oh yeah, recognize, allow, feel, trust. Maybe that's what would be helpful. Maybe one last thing I'll say about aversion in all its different forms is that sometimes it shows up as fueling any of these like um, tools that we're using or practices that we are uh, employing. We do this, we use these tools in my practice, of course, to find more ease and find our way forward. But there's also a way in which there can be a little bit of aversion that's fueling them. I'm going to do this practice so that damn thing will go away. And often we don't see that. And so because there's this aversion there, it stays. So just notice, is there a way instead that we can feel into it, recognize, allow, trust, And maybe we can, as we pointed to earlier in the retreat, maybe we can even shift the attention to something that isn't difficult, the bunny rabbits. (laughs) I, I love these bunny rabbits. The good food. Whatever it might be, the when you finally felt like, oh yeah, I was mindful of that and it wasn't nearly as bad as I thought it was going to be. Maybe there's some of that too. Nikki, Tanya, and I wish that all of you would have zero difficulties. (laughs) But Chances are we can't do that for you. Can't do it for anybody. Nobody can do this for you. But we can shift our relationship to difficulties and discover that there is whatever word feels appropriate, well-being, delight, gladness, softness, joy. While we're practicing with them, while there's, maybe there's, in addition to the difficulty, there's something that's not so bad that's happening. And then I'd like to read this poem one more time as a way to close. It's called Strange Balance. When 
the boy is sneering or the glass is breaking or the woman is weeping or the streets are crowded with anger and rage, it is hard to believe a small joy has any real value. Hard to believe a single red Gerber daisy or a cup of grapefruit-scented tea might have any relevance, could bear any weight on the scale that measures what it is to be alive. But last night, while I was steeping in worry, aching with injustice, my daughter created a stage between the threadbare couches and hummed herself a soundtrack as she leapt and spun and shuffled and flapped, and oh, how her brief flare of joy changed the flavor of the night. An improbable balance, the way even the smallest amount of sugar transforms the bitter sauce, the way just one note resolves a minor chord, the way the barest hint of rain makes the whole desert erupt into bloom. Let's sit just for 30 seconds. You don't have to shift your posture. 